We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. And away we go. Episode 92 of the Al Galdi Podcast. Uh-oh. 92. Dare I say it? The Albert Hainsworth episode? Are we really going to call this the Albert Hainsworth episode? No way. We can't do that, right? Not possible, as Steve Buckhans once said. No! Not possible! Not possible! Yes, exactly, Buck. Not possible. Well, who else wore number 92? Actually, you know who else wore number 92? Stacy McGee. We're not going to call this the Stacy McGee episode, right? No, we can't do that. Sorry. 92 is a rough number. How about Chris Baker? Can we say that? Chris Baker, yes, faded quickly after leaving Washington, but he was quite good for Washington in that 2015 NFC East winning season. You can always tweet me at Al Galdi. I got this tweet on Thursday from one of my favorites, the incomparable CJ. Wrote CJ, I can't wait for the Albert Hainsworth episode of the podcast. Let's all have a lazy Friday and find a nice patch of grass to lay on while we listen to the podcast. LOL. You know what, CJ? That actually makes perfect sense. It is Friday. We all deserve a lazy Friday. So in honor of Albert laying on the FedEx field turf as he did in the Monday night massacre loss to the Philadelphia Eagles in 2010, we shall call this the Albert Hainsworth episode. No! Not possible! Not possible! Yes, Buck. It is possible. Yes, Buck. It be happening right now. It is Friday, June 25th, 2021. Happy Friday to you and yours. I know that it is a happy Friday for the Nationals, especially Kyle Schwerber. Kyle freaking Schwerber. Can anybody stop this man? Two more homers on Thursday night. 7-3 Nats win at the Miami Marlins. The rise of the Nats continues. Much more on the Nats coming up next segment. Special guest on the show, Brad Spielberger, salary cap analyst for Pro Football Focus. This guy is awesome when it comes to talking about the NFL salary cap. 
and NFL contracts. We are going to do a deep dive on the Washington football team's salary cap situation. What is good? What is perhaps concerning? How likely are long-term contracts this offseason for Jonathan Allen and Brandon Sheriff? How challenging will keeping all of the stud defensive linemen be over the long haul? Is Washington onto something from a cap perspective in not having a lot of cap space being spent on the quarterback position? All of that and much more with Brad Spielberger. I promise you that you'll enjoy this. I promise you that Brad will make you smarter regarding the Washington football team when it comes to the cap and contracts. Also on this installment of the Al Galdi podcast, some recent pessimism from national NFL analysts regarding Ryan Fitzpatrick. Is that pessimism justified or are these guys way off? I have a few things to say about that. And I will talk Orioles, another bludgeoning of the O's on Thursday night, a 9-0 loss to the Toronto Blue Jays in Buffalo. The Orioles franchise record road losing streak extended to 20 games as Dean Kramer had one of the bloodiest pitching lines that you'll ever see. The O's truly are taking tanking to a whole new level this season. The O's now have been outscored over their last four games 35-3. Yeah, you heard that right. 35-3. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Tweet from Reza. Dear Al, thank you for an excellent podcast. I stopped listening to every other football podcast since you started. Well, thank you, Reza. Why don't you love Washington Red Spears? We already have the logo and Spears must roll off the tongue so smoothly not to be mixed with Britney. Uh, Yes, Reza, thank you for that. Hashtag free Britney now, by the way. But here's the issue with Red Spears. It has Native American undertones. And the Washington football team, with its next name, cannot do the Native American thing. Even if the heart is in the right place, even if you want to honor Native American culture, you can't be doing that because you're going to offend people. And what you cannot have with the next name is something that is offensive to even a few, okay? You got to find something that nobody's offended by because you cannot go through something like this ever again. The next name has got to be the permanent name forever. Okay, the franchise can never go through this again. You got to pick a name that nobody is going to have a problem with. And I very much could see right or wrong people having an issue with Red Spears. Email from Mike Holmes, who has several questions about the Washington football team. All right, let's see what we got here. Writes Mike, how committed to Kelvin Harmon is this staff? Did he do anything of note during minicamp? And do you think he will be on the final roster. Well, I don't think this coaching staff is extremely committed to anybody who was here prior to the coaching staff's arrival. That said, I do think the coaching staff is open to Kelvin Harmon and should be open to Kelvin Harmon. Kelvin Harmon in his 2019 rookie season was the best blocking pass catcher on Washington. Uh, You never, ever just dismiss someone who can excel in that regard. And, you know, we don't know what Kelvin Harmon can be as a pass catcher, right? I mean, he's an unfinished product in that way. I expect Washington, when it comes to the season opening roster, to keep a lot of receivers. Uh, In fact, I would kind of be disappointed if Washington didn't do that. I think there are a lot of receivers on the team worth keeping. I think Harmon is uh, very much one of them. I mean, you know, we'll see what kind of a camp he has, what kind of a preseason he has. But um, especially with the lack of activity by Washington at the tight end position this offseason, I would be totally open to Washington only keeping, say, two tight ends 
on the season opening roster, right? You just keep Logan Thomas and John Bates and you keep a bunch of receivers. You're allowed to do that. Teams have done that. Um, I think this is a roster for which doing that makes some sense. We'll see. Uh, Continues Mike with as many questions. (laughs) Why don't they bring in Le'Veon Bell? Oh my God. For a competition with Peyton Barber and Lamar Miller, Bell is able to be the three down back we need if Gibson goes down. I'm actually not sure of that with Bell because he's not the same player he was a few years ago. But more to the point, I don't think Le'Veon Bell fits the Ron Rivera culture overhaul. So if you're going to bring in Le'Veon Bell, you tell me, you expect him to behave? You expect him to sit quietly if, in fact, he doesn't get a lot of touches game in, game out because neither Gibson nor J.D. McKissick nor Barber is injured? Um, I don't expect that. I think Bell would become a malcontent. We just saw what went down between him and Kansas City Chiefs head coach Andy Reid. So I would not touch Le'Veon Bell. I think his prime has passed him. And man, did he make a mistake sitting out that 2018 season. Continues, Mike. Why does Ron hate the tight end position? If Thomas gets hurt and misses any time, we have no one on the roster to fill his spot. I think the guy to fill his spot would be John Bates. I think they like John Bates. But to your point, you don't have any proven depth behind Logan Thomas. That's 100% the case. And I think that tells you something about what I think Washington may end up doing, which is keeping a bunch of receivers. Continues, Mike. Will all of the 2021 and beyond stats have asterisks next to them because of records being broken now because of 17 game seasons? Uh, I don't know if you put asterisks, but you definitely have to look at counting stats differently when you have now a 17 game regular season as compared to a 16 game regular season. But we're just talking counting stats when we talk about that. Rate stats to me always matter more. On a per game basis, on a per pass basis, on a per touch basis, what are you doing? Last question from Mike. Which free agents are available to be our third defensive end? Who would you want or think would be a good fit? Well, I think the team thinks that one, maybe even both of the seventh round edge rushers taken in the 2021 NFL draft by Washington could end up making the season opening roster, talking about Shaka Tony and William Bradley King. Remember, a 2027th round pick for Washington, James Smith-Williams played a good amount last season as well. So I think all three guys are viable options to serve as the number three edge rusher for Washington this upcoming season. But there actually are still a bunch of veteran free agent edge rushers out there. But of course, they're all out there for a reason. Uh, Melvin Ingram remains a free agent, but he's coming off a knee injury. Olivier Vernon remains a free agent, but he's coming off a ruptured Achilles. Justin Houston is a free agent. You know who also is still a free agent? Trent Murphy. So yeah, you got some options here, but I don't see Washington signing those guys. And also, especially if you're, say, a Justin Houston, are you going to want to come here knowing that unless Chase Young or Montez Sweat gets hurt, you're probably not going to be playing a whole heck of a lot this upcoming season, right? I mean, a guy like Justin Houston is going to look at what happened with Ryan Kerrigan last season and his diminished playing time and say, why am I going to go to Washington, where unless Chase or Montez gets hurt, I'm probably not going to be playing a ton. Concludes Mike in his email. Thanks, Al. Stay awesome and keep rising up the ratings. Well, thank you, Mike. Very nice of you to say that. And I am happy to say this podcast back up to number 21 on Apple Podcasts in the U.S. football category on Thursday. So thank you for your continued support. Please, if you don't already subscribe to the podcast, 
consider subscribing to the podcast. And if you have the time, and this doesn't take much time, please give the podcast a five-star rating and just write like a one-sentence review. Doing those things helps out the podcast a lot. Well, I don't know if he can rush the passer, but I do know that one of the great supporters of this podcast, John Grandlin of Real Broker, can sell homes. And that way, he is the Dexter Manley of local real estate agents. If you need to sell your home and aren't sure to whom to turn, if you've been trying to sell your home and you're not satisfied with how things are going, if you're even just thinking about selling your home, contact my guy, John Grandlin, aka John G. He's a great guy, big Washington football team fan, big Nationals fan. And when you contact John, ask him about commission flex. Rod Rivera has position flex, as you surely know by now. John Grandlin has commission flex. Position flex. Yes, Ron, I just mentioned it. Position flex, but John G has commission flex. Commission flex is simple. Flexibility regarding the commission that you pay. You see, not every house requires the same amount of work or money spent marketing, so why should you pay the same fees? It doesn't make sense. It's never made sense. Don't accept some flat rate. If your house is going to sell in six minutes, don't pay 6%. Let John put a marketing plan together for you that will maximize your home's value and help you keep more of your hard-earned equity in your pocket. John has a menu of commission packages that you can choose from, including selling your home for free. Yes, you heard that right. For free, some conditions do apply. But interviewing John Grandlin is an absolute no-brainer. He can come by your house, give you a step-by-step plan on what to do to get top dollar, and maybe even more importantly, what not to do so you don't spend needlessly and there is never any obligation to list or sell. Do yourself a favor and call John Grandlin. He will sell your home guaranteed. That's right, guaranteed. He guarantees the sale of your home. Call John G. now. It's 703-537-6747. Make sure you tell him that Al Galdi sent you. That's 703-537-6747. Tell him you want to know more about what you heard about on the Al Galdi podcast, Commission Flex. You can also visit John at johngsellsforfree.com. That's johngsellsforfree.com. John Grandlin, nobody will do a better job of selling your home. And remember, he is the master of commission flex. Position flex. Yes, Ron, just like position flex. It is Kyle Schwarber's world. We're all just living in it. One of the greatest individual surges continued in a 7-3 Nationals win at the Miami Marlins on Thursday night in game one of a four-game series. But before we do more on Schwarber, let us first acknowledge this. The Nats now are 500. The Nats, who were nine games below 500 at 24-33, and 33, now are at 500 at 36 and 36. In a little more than two weeks' time, the Nats have gone from nine games below 500 to now being at 500. First time that the Nats have been 500 since they were 12 and 12, which was after a three game sweep of, you guessed it, the Marlins, April 30th through May 2nd at Nationals Park. Nothing quite like facing the Marlins to put you in a better spot. But the Nats now have won five consecutive games. The Nats now have won 11 of the team's last 13 games, and the Nats now are three and a half games behind the National League East leading New York Mets. And so Davey Martinez 
if you would please. I'm proud of the boys. Yes, sir, Davey. But Kyle Schwarber, of course, remains the man. What a job this guy is doing. What a run this guy is on. Your national starting left fielder and number one batter on Thursday night, two for four with two homers, a walk, four RBI, did strike out twice, but whatever. Kyle Schwarber tortured the Marlins starter on Thursday night, Cody Petit hitting both home runs off Senor Potit. Schwarber in the top of the first, blasting a leadoff homer on a bomb to right field, despite having been down in the count at one point, one, two. The homer going a projected 398 feet per stat cast. The homer was Schwarber's fifth leadoff homer in a first inning this season, already putting him alone for second for the most first inning leadoff homers by a national in a season since the franchise came to D.C. Alfonso Soriano was number one with nine first-inning leadoff homers in 2006. Schwarber is already more than halfway there with five and just like a handful of games as the Nats' number one batter. Schwarber then in the top of the second and what ended up being a Nationals four-run second smashed another home run, this time a two-out three-run homer to dead center on an 0-2 pitch. The home run, a true Schwarber bomb, going a projected 414 feet per stat cast. Schwarber's two homers now give him 12 home runs over the last 13 games. That is absurd. 12 home runs over the last 13 games. He, during that span, has raised his slugging percentage for the season by 140 points from 404 to 544. If you're like me, and you grew up playing RBI baseball on Nintendo. There was no more lethal batter than Tony Armas on the Boston Red Sox. Kyle Schwarber right now is Tony Armas on the Boston Red Sox in RBI baseball. 12 home runs over the last 13 games, slugging percentage up by 140 points over the last 13 games. And Schwarber drew a walk on Thursday night, had a two-out six-pitch walk in the top of the eighth despite having been down in the count at one point, one, two. Good game for Juan Soto on Thursday night. Starting right fielder, number three batter, two for five with two RBI doubles and two strikeouts. Soto had a two-out first pitch RBI double to center field in the Nats' four-run second and an RBI double to right center field in the Nats' two-run seventh. We have not seen this often, especially lately. Juan Soto with a multi-extra base hit game, but he did that on Thursday night. Nice to see that. And Trey Turner, had a good game on Thursday night. Starting shortstop number two batter, he ended up going one for three with a single and a couple of walks. So he gets on base three times, five-pitch walk in the top of the first, a two-out single on an 0-2 pitch in the Nats four-run second, and a leadoff six-pitch walk in the Nats two-run seventh inning. You know, you look at this lineup now, and Davey Martinez has pretty clearly settled into Kyle Schwarber in the leadoff spot, and that should never, ever, ever change. Uh, Trey Turner in the number two spot, Juan Soto in the number three spot. That's a pretty good one, two, three punts to get things going, right? I mean, we still want to see Juan Soto hit for more power. I still want to see Trey Turner get back to hitting for more power. But Schwarber is basically making up for everyone right now when it comes to hitting for power. But Schwarber won, Turner two, Soto three. That's pretty good. That's a, that's a pretty good way to begin things offensively in a game. The rest of the lineup leaves a lot to be desired, but that top three 
is uh, actually coming into form quite nicely here. Again, you got to get Soto going from a power hitting standpoint, and I do want to see Trey get back to where he was a few weeks ago. Joe Ross was an ad starting pitcher on Thursday night, and he was good. He was terrific, in fact. Seven scoreless innings on eight strikeouts versus four hits and two walks on 101 pitches, 68 strikes versus 33 balls. Now, you do have to say this. The Marlins are a terrible offensive team. Miami came into games on Thursday just 21st out of 30 major league teams in team weighted runs created plus at 89. 100 is league average. The Marlins have a team weighted runs created plus. That's basically an advanced stat for batting of 89. Really bad. So this is not a good offensive team. If you're a pitcher with any sort of ability, you should do a, at least a halfway decent job against Miami. Ross did that and then some. And he was good. I want to give Ross credit. He benefited from his defense behind him. That's turned three double plays. That was good to see. Uh, Ross, though, got a bunch of strikeouts. Like I said, eight strikeouts over the seven shutout innings. Ross recorded two strikeouts in each of the first three innings. I have said that there is good Joe Ross and there is bad Joe Ross, just like in the 2011 Washington season, there was good Rex Grossman and bad Rex Grossman. This was good Joe Ross on display on Thursday night. But here's all you need to know about the Jekyll and Hyde nature of Joe Ross's season. So this start on Thursday night was Ross's 14th start of the season. Do you know this was the sixth start in which Ross allowed zero earned runs? Did you know that? I mean, that's pretty nuts, right? Nearly half of his starts have resulted in him having zero earned runs in the game. Six out of 14. And yet, and yet, his ERA for the season now is 412. Like, his ERA isn't even under four, despite him having allowed zero earned runs in six of his 14 starts so far this season. That tells you all you need to know about how like bipolar Ross has been as a starting pitcher so far this year. But the guy does have ability and we obviously saw it on display on Thursday night. Ross was coming off having allowed five runs in five innings in the 5-1, seven-inning loss to the New York Mets at Nationals Park on Saturday afternoon in game one of a doubleheader. Nats uh, utilized two relievers on Thursday night, Justin Miller and Wander Suero. Now, Miller had problems. He gave up three runs in the bottom of the eighth, leadoff seven-pitch walk of John Birdie despite him having been down in the count of 1.02, a single by Luis Marte, and then the big blow, a three-run homer by Jazz Chisholm Jr., despite him having been down in the count of 1.02. You know, this game was a blowout, and then all of a sudden, you were like, wait a second here, the Marlins just hit a three-run homer, and you almost got it to where the game was a save circumstance. Not that I get caught up in saves, but just the idea that the game got even reasonably close was a problem. You know, I, I hated to see Miller give up that three-run bomb as Miller did. Thankfully, Wander Suero tossed a scoreless bottom of the ninth inning, and you, we never had to see Brad Hand pitch in this game. That would have been criminal. With how much Brad Hand has been leaned on, especially lately, for him to have had to come into this game off the Nats having been up in it 7 nothing. I mean, that's a joke, man. Your bullpen's got to be able to shut the door, and ultimately, the Nats bullpen did end up doing that. Uh, some other items on the Nationals. So Josh Bell was scratched from the lineup on Thursday. This due to his right side bothering him. He was to undergo an MRI exam. So that's something to be monitoring here now. Is Josh Bell injured? Is maybe even Josh Bell about to go on the 10-day injured list? Hopefully not. He's been better lately. Uh, Ryan Zimmerman ended up being the Nats starting first baseman at number four batter. 0 for 4 with a walk. He had a two out five pitch walk 
in the top of the second inning. Jan Gomes on Thursday night threw out another runner trying to steal a base. Gomes has been so good in this regard this season. Did not have a very good offensive game. 0 for 4 with a walk and three strikeouts. But Gomes gunning down Jazz Chisholm Jr. on a strike him out, throw him out, double play for the final two outs in the bottom of the first. Gomes now 15 of 35 on runners trying to steal this season. Just an awesome job by Gomes. He's been so much better this year when it comes to controlling the running game. And his backup, Alex Avila's done a nice job in that department as well. And I did want to mention this. Victor Robles drew two walks on Thursday night. He went 0 for 2, but he had two walks. Uh, struck out twice, but two walks. Uh, one out six pitch walk in the Nats four run second and a two out five pitch walk in the top of the third. It has been a very odd year for Victor Robles. On the one hand, he's been excellent defensively, so he's back to being an elite defensive center fielder. On the other hand, he's hit for like no power, zero home runs still off him having hit 17 home runs in the 2019 regular season. He's also had a bunch of base running blunders. But another positive for Robles this season has been his increased walk rate. Victor Robles now in the year has 24 walks. He had 35 walks all of the 2019 regular season. The increased walks don't make up for the zero homers, okay? But still, that is nice to see that he's drawing more walks. He's getting on base in ways other than, you know, just getting hit by a bunch of pitches. Game two for the Nats at the Marlins, Friday night at 7-10, John Lester versus Pablo Lopez. Now, Lopez is having a good season for the Marlins, an ERA of 286 over 15 starts. So I'm interested to see how the Nats do offensively on Friday night, facing a guy who's having a good season. But for Lester, he is having a good season, you know, all things considered. And he's coming off a nice outing too. A uh, 6-2-7 inning win over the New York Mets in Nationals Park on Saturday evening in game two of the doubleheader. Lester in that game, two runs in six innings. Nice job. Six strikeouts, versus no walks. Did give up seven hits, but that is the thing that Lester does. He puts guys on base, but he's done a nice job overall this season of minimizing damage. John Lester over 10 starts this year has an ERA of 396, especially given how bad he was with the Chicago Cubs each of the previous two seasons. You take that and you run with that if you're a Nats fan. Lester with a 396 ERA. Now he's got a whip of 144. Again, he puts a lot of guys on base, but he's got that uh, savvy veteran nature to him to where he's able to often escape these innings unscathed. And uh, I would anticipate seeing more of that from Lester, especially, again, given that the Marlins are putrid offensively. One other Nationals note, their top prospect and one of the top pitching prospects in baseball, Cade Cavalli, who is now at the double-A level pitching for the Harrisburg Senators, 11 strikeouts in five and two-thirds innings in his start on Thursday night. Did give up two runs, did issue four walks, but 11 strikeouts for Cavalli over five and two-thirds scoreless innings. Well, the Kyle Schwarber of Area Doctors, undoubtedly, is Dr. George Verghese. Each guy hits one home run after another. Dr. George Verghese is the medical director for the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland. He's a board-certified dermatologist and Mohs surgeon. The Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland diagnoses and treats a broad range of acute and chronic skin conditions, including skin cancer. And specific to that, Dr. George Verghese and his institute offer something that's a game changer, superficial radiation therapy, or SRT. SRT is an alternative to surgical procedures for basal cell and squamous cell skin cancers. SRT is safe, effective, 
and non-surgical. And that's a key point. Having skin cancer doesn't mean having to have surgery and the downtime and side effects, cosmetic and otherwise, that come with surgery. You have options. SRT is an option. And Dr. George Verghese and the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland offer the option of SRT, unlike many other dermatology practices in the area. And SRT is covered by most insurances. To find out more, call 301-396-3401. Make sure you tell them that Al Galdi sent you. That phone number again is 301-396-3401. Dr. George Verghese is a great guy. He is an expert in his field. He's a big sports fan as well. You can also visit Dr. George Verghese in the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland online at midatlanticskin.com. That's midatlanticskin.com. Dr. George Verghese in the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland, nationally recognized for treating skin cancer across the Mid-Atlantic region. All right, so before we get to our special guest, Brad Spielberger, pro football focus salary cap analyst, talking Washington football team. We are, of course, in the midst of the Washington football team lull between minicamp and training camp. We're also in the midst of list season. The way that NFL writers and analysts and talking heads pass the time this time of year is by making lists. Top 10 this, top 50 that, you know the drill. NFL analyst Chris Sims of NBC Sports has put out his list of the top 40 quarterbacks in the NFL. His top five, number one, Patrick Mahomes. Number two, Josh Allen. Number three, Aaron Rodgers. Number four, Deshaun Watson. Number five, Russell Wilson. Yes, Sims has Josh Allen ahead of Aaron Rodgers. And notice whose name you didn't hear, Tom Brady's. The rest of Sims' top 10, number six, Lamar Jackson. Number seven, Kyler Murray. Number eight, Matthew Stafford. Number nine, Dak Prescott. Number 10, Tom Brady. So Chris Sims has the GOAT, the man who just won his seventh Super Bowl title, Tom Brady, as just the 10th best quarterback in the NFL right now. Cuckoo! Cuckoo! Yes, exactly. Now, Chris Sims is known for having some hot takes and saying things that few others say, and that's fine. It's his job to generate viewers and readers. I'm playing right into his trap right now by talking about his list. I get that. But I really don't care about Sims' top 10. What I was interested in was where he had our guy, Ryan Fitzpatrick. Guess how low you must go to find Fitzmagic? Number 23. Ryan Fitzpatrick, the 23rd best quarterback in the NFL right now per Chris Sims. Ryan Fitzpatrick, who ranked in the top 10 in the NFL in ESPN's total QBR each of the last two seasons, just the 23rd best quarterback in the NFL right now per Chris Sims. Among those who Sims has ranked ahead of Fitzpatrick, brace yourself for this. Carson Wentz at number 18. Cuckoo! Cuckoo! Yeah. Sam Darnold at number 19. Cuckoo! Cuckoo! Yeah. 
Cam Newton at number 20. Cuckoo! Cuckoo! Chris Sims has Wentz, Darnold, and Cam all ranked ahead of Fitzpatrick. Now, something else to keep in mind here is that Chris Sims works for NBC Sports, which has a major relationship with Pro Football Talk, which is owned by Mike Florio, who hates the Washington football team and has for years. I call him Fake News Florio for all of the negative and biased stuff that he and his site have put out about the team over the years. It really has been obnoxious. And I say that admitting that I read Pro Football Talk. It's otherwise a good site, but the over-the-top anti-Washington bias really has annoyed me. So perhaps Chris Sims has been infected with Florio's anti-Washington-itis. But whatever the case, Fitzpatrick, just the 23rd best quarterback in the NFL right now per Sims. There's also this. Mark Ross, an analyst for NFL Network, former executive for the New York Giants and Philadelphia Eagles. Here he was on NFL Network with NFL analytics expert Cynthia Freeland of NFL Network and NFL.com on the Washington football team. So as a talent evaluator, Ryan Fitzpatrick has always been a little bit erratic when you watch him on film, but I'm going to go with your route, Cynthia, and just give you some numbers. He's 38 years old. He's been in the NFL 16 seasons on eight different teams. He has 30 less, uh, 30 more losses than wins and zero playoff appearances. So this is intriguing that Washington, who I think is going to have the best defense in the NFL with the addition of William Jackson and free agency, the corner and the first round pick linebacker, Jamin Davis from Kentucky, will be the best defense in the NFL that they decided to roll the dice with Ryan Fitzpatrick winning them division and making playoff wins. Uh, And Cynthia, it just doesn't add up for me, those numbers. All right, so Ross loves Washington's defense, says that Washington will have the best defense in the NFL, but he is not at all feeling Fitzmagic as doing a good job for Washington this coming season. Well, is he right? Is Chris Sims right? Where exactly does Ryan Fitzpatrick rank among quarterbacks in the NFL right now? This Ryan Fitzpatrick optimism that you've heard from me and so many others, including a number of guests on this podcast, Washington all-time great quarterback Joe Theismann just this week in episode 90, Sam Monson, lead NFL analyst for Pro Football Focus in episodes 26 and 68. Are we all wrong? Or are the likes of Chris Sims and Mark Ross wrong? You know where I stand. I do want to make a few points. Number one, the Ryan Fitzpatrick of the last few seasons is different than the Ryan Fitzpatrick of, say, the previous 10 seasons. That doesn't guarantee that he'll be great in 2021, but that does mean that he has quantifiably played the best football of his career over the last few seasons. Fitzpatrick finished the 2018 regular season number one in the NFL in yards per pass attempt at 9.6. Fitzpatrick finished the 2019 regular season number eight among 30 qualified quarterbacks in the NFL in ESPN's total QBR at 68.3. Fitzpatrick finished the 2020 regular season at number five among 33 qualified quarterbacks in the NFL in ESPN's total QBR at 76.9. The lazy take is that Fitzpatrick is a journeyman loser who throws a bunch of picks. 
The accurate take is, yes, Fitzpatrick has played for a million teams, and yes, he certainly has thrown some interceptions, but he also has played at a high level the last few seasons. The Ryan Fitzpatrick of 2018 through 2020, much better than the Ryan Fitzpatrick of, say, 2008 through 2013. He started coming on in 2014 with the Houston Texans, and he has actually given a lot of credit, believe it or not, to former Texans head coach Bill O'Brien, who I know nobody can stand, but Fitzpatrick has actually had some really nice things to say about Bill O'Brien, who, by the way, is also a former running backs coach for Maryland, for you Terrapins fans out there. Fitzpatrick also had a good season with a terrible ending for the New York Jets in 2015, but the Fitzpatrick of 2018 through 2020, quite good. 2018, his last season with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, 2019 and 2020, his two seasons with the Miami Dolphins. The second point regarding anti-Fitzpatrick sentiment has to do with what Mark Ross brought up. Fitzpatrick's record and him having never made the playoffs. For the record, Fitzpatrick's career regular season record is 59-86-1. and Not good, clearly. And if you want to get all bent out of shape over that, knock yourself out. I would like to think, though, that we as a fan base are sophisticated enough now to understand that one of the worst ways that you can evaluate quarterbacks is by their records. I certainly know that the highly football-educated listeners of this podcast understand that one of the worst ways that you can evaluate quarterbacks is by their records. We just went through this with Alex Smith, right? I mean, did we not just have the same conversation just a few months ago? Alex, over his time with the Washington football team, 2018 through 2020, went 11-5. and The rest of Washington's quarterbacks over those three regular seasons went 5 and 26. Yes, that stands out. 11 and 5 versus 5 and 26. And yes, Alex deserves props for his record with Washington. But dig a little deeper on the record and never forget this about Alex's 11 and 5 record as Washington quarterback. Just one of those wins came against a team that finished with a winning record. Yes, just one of Alex's 11 wins in his 11 and 5 record as Washington quarterback came against a team that finished with a winning record. That win, the 23-17 win at the Pittsburgh Steelers in week 13 of this past season. You just can't put a ton of stock in quarterbacks' records, okay? What's a better evaluation of Alex's 2020? His record or the fact that he had some of the worst numbers that you'll ever see a quarterback have over the course of a season? Maybe the greatest quarterback in Washington history, Sonny Jurgensen, has a bad career record. Sonny's career regular season record is 69-71-7. and Is that an accurate reflection of who Sonny was as a quarterback? Or was there a little more to Sonny as a quarterback than just his record? And maybe just maybe did that bad record have more to do with bad Washington defenses during Sonny's tenure as Washington quarterback as opposed to Sonny himself? He is in the Pro Football Hall of Fame, by the way. Just look at last season, though, too. The Los Angeles Chargers quarterback, Justin Herbert, in a stellar 2020 rookie season, 31 touchdown passes versus 10 interceptions, threw for 4,336 yards. Do you know what his record was last season? Six and nine. Yeah. So if you really want to put a lot of stock 
in quarterbacks' records. Justin Herbert wasn't very good last season. He went just 6-9. and nine. Now, is that an accurate reflection of who Herbert was as a quarterback in his rookie season? Or maybe just maybe do the 31 touchdown passes versus 10 interceptions and 4,336 passing yards. Tell us a little more about the job that Herbert did as a quarterback for the Chargers in 2020. Record schmeckered. The next time someone brings up a quarterback's record, just say that to that person. Very nicely, but say it. Record schmeckered. And when it comes to Fitzpatrick having never made the playoffs, yeah, that is notable. And yeah, one of the reasons that he has never made the playoffs is what happened in week 17 of the 2015 season. I'll never forget this. 22-17 loss for Fitzpatrick and the New York Jets at the Buffalo Bills, a loss that caused the Jets to miss the playoffs, even with a 10-6 and record. Fitzpatrick was terrible in that game. He completed just 16 of 37 pass attempts. He threw three interceptions, all in the fourth quarter. But Fitzpatrick almost certainly would have made the playoffs last season had the Dolphins not benched him for Tua Tungavailoa. That's pretty well accepted. I talked about that with then-Dolphins insider Josh Tolentino of the Athletic Miami in episode 67 of the podcast. Look, I'm not saying that Ryan Fitzpatrick is elite. I'm not saying that he's even a top 10, top 12, or even top 15 quarterback in the NFL right now. But he's better than 23rd. I do know that. And he's more capable than someone like Mark Ross seems to think. You tell me what you think. Hit me up on Twitter at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash Blue Wire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. So there are many things that make the NFL fascinating to follow and talk about. One of the biggest is the salary cap. A team can't just sign whoever it wants and pay players whatever it wants. There is a salary cap to which teams must adhere. We're in a very interesting time with the NFL salary cap as it went down for the upcoming season due to the COVID-19 pandemic, but is expected to skyrocket over the next few years. And so here to talk Washington football team from a salary cap perspective right now is Brad Spielberger, salary cap analyst for Pro Football Focus, one of the best when it comes to discussing the NFL salary cap and NFL contracts. Brad, it's great to have you on. How are you? I appreciate you having me. I'm, I'm doing well today. How about you? Doing well. I appreciate you coming on. So you just put out your three-year salary cap analysis of all 32 NFL teams. It's outstanding. People can check this out by going to profootballfocus.com. The Washington football team ranks well in three of the five categories, does rank poorly in the other two categories, especially 
one specific category. So I wanted to ask you about each category, what it means, and where Washington is at in the category. Let's start with the good rankings. Uh, Washington, in your three-year salary cap analysis, ranks seventh in the NFL in effective cap space from 2021 through 2023. For those who don't know, effective cap space means what? Yeah. So, you know, in a current year, we obviously know how much cap space the team has because they're fielding a full roster. You know, right now in the offseason, obviously, they're fielding even more than the 53-man roster. So we know it's all settled. But we want to look into future years. The way to level the playing field across all the different teams is to say, all right, well, if this team only has 40 guys under contract, yeah, they may have more cap space, but they also need to go ahead and sign 13 more players at least, um, you know, to, to fill out that roster. So what we do is we just, you know, take the minimum, you know, potential cap hit in a current year uh, or a future year, excuse me, um, and then just multiply that by the amount of guys they're missing uh, to get to that minimum 53. So that way we can analyze every team, you know, on the same, you know, from the same platform. Okay, so seventh obviously is good. Washington ranks sixth in the NFL in prorated money from 2021 through 2023. What does that say to you? Yeah, and I should really quick just go back to the, the seventh ranking on the on the cap space. That's also with you know a huge franchise tag uh, for Brandon Sheriff at 18 million dollars. That obviously could be pushed out you know over a number of years. Um, you have the fifth year option for Jonathan Allen. So that seven ranking is honestly you know really strong for them. And then yeah, to, to the prorated money, um, you know that means that they haven't converted a lot of money into signing bonus and pushed it down the line. Um, you know other NFC East fans, uh, you know particularly the Eagles, are, are very familiar with this approach. Uh, they come in dead last in this category. And essentially, when you continue to push money down the line, um, you know, via bonuses, it obviously clears money up front and you have more cap flexibility in the short term. Um, but that money cannot be kind of, you know, manipulated or, or, you know, gotten rid of in any way, shape or form. It's a sunk cost, um, you know, on the cap and you can't maneuver it. So Washington hasn't done a lot of that, which means they have flexibility and they could do that. You know, as I mentioned, with Sheriff or with the Jonathan Allen, where you push money down the road, but it even adds more money up front. Yeah. And I want to get your takes on the John Allen and Brandon Sheriff situations coming up in just a bit. Washington ranks sixth in the NFL in top 51 veteran valuation. What exactly is that? Yeah, so this is just looking, you know, I get a lot of feedback, which I definitely understand when people say, well, you know, cap space is great, but the reason you have cap space is because you don't have good players that you're, you know, need to pay top dollar. And that is very fair. So I wanted to also incorporate just how we value the current roster. So removing rookies from the equation, uh, we looked at, you know, every team and the guys they have now. And essentially, I've created contract projections, which are realistically just, you know, you know, in one moment, a valuation of a player. Um, and so essentially taking every player on the on the Washington football team roster, again, excluding those rookies and just saying, OK, what is the total value of all of these guys? Um you know, compared to the marketplace and, and based on their performance. So, yeah, we think Washington is a very talented roster. Um, you know, obviously the, the defensive front seven is, is as good as it gets. Um, and, and, you know, those guys are, are going to, you know, have big paydays coming, but they're worth, they're worth a lot. Um, and there's, you know, of course, a lot of strong players at other spots as well. All right. So those are the good rankings for Washington in your three-year salary cap analysis of all 32 NFL teams. Washington top 10 in each of those three categories we just went through. There are, though, two bad rankings for Washington in your analysis. Washington came out 22nd in the NFL in active draft capital 
and 29th in the NFL in 2022 UFA valuation. How troubling are those rankings? Yeah, so the draft one's tough. Uh, I mean, it, we you know when you trade up for Montez Sweat, yes, he's been a very very good player. Um, but you go ahead and give the Colts what the 34th overall pick when you give them that sec that that future second. Um, you know, you obviously struggle that year and pick second overall, and and you know add Chase Young as you know the the, the pass rusher, the edge rusher to go along with Montez Sweat, and so that's great. Um, but you know, you kind of you get, give away a really valuable second round pick, and then obviously you know Dwayne Haskins, do you use a you know a mid first rounder on a guy who's no longer on the roster? So you know, it, it's fine. They still do it. They, they draft a lot of players each year. Um, I tend to appreciate their approach to the draft. I think they go with. I'm not going to say qual- a quantity over quality. I think they also do draft well, um, but they do, you know, kind of stockpile picks occasionally and, and make some smart trades. So I wouldn't be too concerned with that ranking there. And then, you know, for the for the unrestricted free agent valuation, yes, they rank 29th, which is a bad thing from a cap space perspective. But it also, again, is, is realistically a good thing because it means that the guys they have that are going to be free agents after this upcoming season are valued very highly. Of course, you have to pay them. So, you know, for, again, from a cap space perspective, they're owed money. Um, and that, of course, you know, Sheriff and Jonathan Allen, as we mentioned, will be those two guys where, you know, they're going to have to get, you know, significant compensation, you know, in the near future. In doing your three-year salary cap analysis of all 32 NFL teams, which NFC East team came out the best? Yeah, it was it was the Washington football team. Uh, I mean, if you look at the just the pure rankings, you know they're tenth, and then you have the Giants at thirteen, and, and Dallas and Philly are in you know nightmare situations. Dallas at twenty five, and, and Philly at twenty nine. Um, you know, but uh, you know, and, and look, you won the division as well last year, so obviously, you know, it's a great position for Washington to be in. Um, yeah, I, I think they've done the best job of being patient, um, of picking their spots. You know, they they spent a bit in free agency, but they didn't you know kind of break the bank by any means. Um, and I think they are very well positioned to continue this, you know, this trend going forward. Um, you know, whereas the Giants just spent a ton of money um, and, and still might not be a very good football team. And then, you know, Dallas has a very talented roster and, and the money is spent on good players, but they're going to have some, some difficult decisions ahead. And Philly's, I mean, it's just an abject disaster, but they are kind of tanking now and they're going to kind of, you know, flush it all down the toilet and start over. Um, but, but as it stands right now, I mean, they're arguably in the, in the worst spot in the NFL, um, you know, for, for these next couple years. All right. Good to hear that. So with the Jonathan Allen and Brandon Sheriff situations, lots of talk here in the D.C. area over the last few months about Washington potentially signing each guy to a long-term contract this offseason. The two situations are different. Allen is set to play the upcoming season under the terms of the fifth-year option in his rookie contract. Sheriff is set to play the upcoming season under the terms of a second consecutive non-exclusive franchise tag tender. That said, we know that the trend in recent years has been for players to do shorter term deals due to the expectation that the salary cap is going to fly to the moon over the next few years due to the new media rights deals and the influx of gambling revenue. So when it comes to signing an Allen or a Sheriff to a long term deal this offseason, do you see Washington locking up either guy? It's a very interesting question. You know, I think it does. Um, we have seen that trend, but I think two kind of factors play in there. You know, one, to, to be honest, the, the, the football team, I know they've kind of had a, you know, a change of, of uh, you know, front office and some new guys are in the building, but they're a club that really does adhere to their, you know, precedence. Um, you know, they, they, they do all they can to kind of ignore that outside noise or ignore some of those trends. So, I mean, even Brandon Sheriff himself, the fact that he's now been franchise tag a second time as a guard, 
Um, you know, it was kind of surprising. I mean, the, the offensive line gets one franchise tag. So, you know, his, his compensation is, is, you know, tied to tackles who get paid more, stuff like that. But Washington, you know, as we saw with, you know, Kirk Cousins as well, they, they stick to their guns um, and they have their own approach. So, you know, I think with him, he might want to go shorter or he might, you know, let this franchise, you know, play on this 18 million and, and test the market again because, um, you know, they're not going to tag him a third time. But he's you know going to be 30 this year. So I think he would be a guy they could convince to say, hey, look, take your one, you know, big long term deal. Um, you might want to go three years like we've seen from guys like a Laramie Tunsil, but just take a five year deal that we're comfortable giving out. Um, you know, it'll, it'll be have substantial upfront guarantees and all that. Um, and, and, you know, you can you can play out the rest of your career, you know, as, as a Washington football team member. Um, Allen maybe may different. Obviously, you know, fifth year option, he's still a younger player. Um, he could go that route. He certainly could. You know, we saw in the NFC East with Leonard Williams, you know, he t- took a three year extension, um, you know, and he gets back on the market before the age of 30. He'll have the potential to sign another you know, significant contract. And so I do think Allen could kind of eye that and be really intrigued by it. But again, I think Washington would say, okay, well, if you want a short term deal, then we're just going to let you play out, you know, on the fifth year option and even potentially let you play out on, on the franchise tag. So, you know, there's, there's kind of different variables at play there. We're talking Washington football team with pro football focus salary cap analyst Brad Spielberger. The way that the Washington football team has handled the Brandon Sheriff situation is the one thing about Washington's offseason that I can't stand. I I don't get this. Slapping him with a second straight franchise tag only serves to disincentivize him from signing a long-term deal because he has $18 million guaranteed coming to him for the upcoming season. Franchise tagging a player in back-to-back years empowers the player and gives him more leverage. Washington went through this with the Kirk Cousins fiasco. Anyway, that's my take. From your perspective, is there any justification for Washington having franchise tag Sheriff for a second straight offseason? I completely agree with you. I'm glad you said that. I uh, and, and I have been a fan of their offseason, both in free agency and in the draft. I thought they've done very well. And this one move, you know, I, I agree, is, is kind of a not a black mark on the offseason, but it's it's my least favorite thing they've done. I, I don't really understand it. I, I think they may have thought, as we saw at many positions across the league, that you know perhaps you know it'll be a slow marketed guard. We did see a lot of guards get cut. You know, you know, solid players like Kevin Zeitler in, in New York and Trey Turner in LA. You know, I can go down a list of guys. So. That position did have early in free agency some issues, and, and teams were kind of saving money on that spot. But then, you know, the Joe Tooney contract from Kansas City Chiefs, uh, he signs for $16 million per year, the highest paid guard in, in, in NFL history. And that killed them because now they have, you know, very little leverage. Sheriff will top that number. Um, there's no chance if they offer him a deal for less than that, he would say yes. And I think they could have probably signed him for, you know, around that figure um, if they just approached him right after the season, said, hey, look, are you played on your franchise tag? You were really good. You stayed healthy, which, you know, has been a concern at times. Um, they should have just, you know, locked it in then. So, yeah, I, I think they did not handle that very well. Um, and, and he does, even as an older player, we discussed, maybe has incentive to get the assurances and, and lock something in. You know, he also could just play it out. $18 million for a guard is a massive one-year payment. <laughs> no, um, no. <laughs> yeah, so so maybe he could just take the risk and then someone in free agency will give him a nice, you know, a nice deal to, to finish out his career. Yeah, they're going to end up paying him $33 million over two years. That's just a ton of money to pay any interior offensive lineman. So something that comes up a lot with Washington is the presumed difficulty that the team is going to have in keeping all of its good defensive linemen 
long-term. Jonathan Allen, Deron Payne, Matt Ioannidis, Chase Young, Montez Sweat. Is it realistic to think that Washington can keep all of those guys long-term? You know, I do think it's going to be a challenge. Um, You know, they're all good players, so it's a good problem to have. Uh, But, you know, to pay four guys that could all realistically command, you know, at least, you know, 16, 17 million per year, even for the guy you say, you know, the least valuable four or five, you add in, you know, Ioannidis as well, pick pick your guy, and maybe he's a little bit less. But, you know, the the four first rounders, um, you know, with with Payne, Allen, Sweat, and and Chase Young, I I mean, look, by the time Chase Young's looking for a deal, he could be asking for $30 million per year. So it's going to be really tough. I, I think they have some tough decisions up ahead. Um, you know, so far, I think they've handled it well. Uh, I think both Allen and, and now Payne deserve to have their fifth-year options picked up, um, and it buys them time, and, and they can kind of figure things out from there and maybe stagger payments as they go along. But, you know, looking out into the future, if you paid all four of those guys, I'll stick with those four, you know, significant top-of-market money, it just makes it harder to fill the roster around them. Washington's salary cap situation regarding the quarterback position. Washington has Ryan Fitzpatrick, who has played well the last few seasons on a one-year $10 million deal, and Taylor Heineke and Kyle Allen on basically nothing contracts. No one is saying that Washington's quarterback situation is great, but I don't think it's unreasonable to say that Washington's quarterback play might be good, maybe even very good, this coming season. Do you think that there's merit to what Washington is doing for this coming season and maybe for future seasons. And this is something that Ron Rivera has talked up, which is trying to find quarterbacks who are undervalued or at the very least decent, but don't cost that much as opposed to taking wild swings via trades for veterans or trade-ups in drafts. I really actually think there is. Um, if your alternatives are like a Carson Wentz or a, you know, maybe like a Derek Carr trade or something like that. Or, you know, I guess even, you know, Kirk Cousins mentioned again, like I do think the NFL, we are finally seeing um, an adjustment where teams think either, okay, either get your, you know, top 10 draft pick and, and make, try to make that work. Or, you know, if you have a Patrick Mahomes, Dak Prescott, whatever, just pay them and, and figure out the rest. I think that middle tier of quarterbacks, let's say the, you know, outside the top eight, so from, you know, nine to 20, those guys are still going to get, you know, $30 million a year presently, or they're still going to get significant money. And I think it is very smart to say, look, Ryan Fitzpatrick could be, you know, 85% of a Derek Carr. You know, I think Carr's a fine player and probably a little bit better than, you know, right now than a 39-year-old Ryan Fitzpatrick. But you get him for one-third of the cost, um, and he's and he's way better than one-third of a Derek Carr. I think there is merit to, to approaching that strategy, trying to figure it out. Um, and then the other guys as well. Yeah, I mean, like the Heineke's and, and other of the world. I mean, you see it, you know, I think Cam Newton is kind of the thought there is, it's a similar approach. Um, you know, I think you know the Bears, I guess, with Andy Dalton before the, the Justin Fields trade, it was like, you know, we're not going to swing on a Carson Wentz. I guess they may have explored a Russell Wilson trade. But if those alternatives don't work out, then just go to the bargain bin and see if you can basically build up an awesome roster around them. Um, I still do think, though, you know, Washington has to um, – this roster is so talented and so good at so many spots that – there, it might be worth taking a big swing in the draft or something in the near future, um, you know, unless one of these guys steps up and, and shows they can be good enough to, you know, make deep playoff runs. I want to ask you some general questions about evaluating NFL salary cap situations and NFL contracts. When it comes to an NFL contract, what is the most important aspect of the contract? Is it the total guarantees? 
Is it the money that's fully guaranteed at signing? Is it the average annual value, AAV? What do you look at in terms of assessing a contract and comparing a contract with another contract? Yeah, and it's a great question. Um, you know, at the end of the day, fully guaranteed money is what uh, truly matters in terms of, you know, what is this player going to get? No questions asked. I mean, uh, you know, of course, outside of, you know, off-field issues or stuff like that. But, you know, fully guaranteed money is huge um, because we've, as we've seen time and time again, you know, total guarantees themselves can even be misleading. Um, you know, teams can get out of the, get out of that money before it vests into a fully guaranteed deal um, or stuff like that. So, you know, first and foremost, you want to look at that. Um, and then, you know, but, but in terms of analyzing the market and comparing guys to each other, the players and agents themselves have told us through their deals that the average per year payout is how they stack themselves up against each other. So, you know, if you wanted to look at a deal and say, you know, how does this guy fit in and how did he sign relative to his position group, stuff like that? you do use the per year average. Um, to the end of the day, also teams are different in how they guarantee contracts. Um, you know, for example, that, you know, the Packers and, and Steelers, they do not guarantee any money outside of signing bonus. So, you know, it might look different, you know, their contract might look very different than, you know, a different club. So yeah, when you're comparing against, you know, that was a difficult answer and, and didn't really say much, but, um, you know, guarantees are what matters to the player. And, and, and what matters to, you know, their compensation and, and their assurances, um, per your average is what matters when you're trying to stack guys up against each other. When it comes to team building, do you believe that there are certain positions at which a team should never spend a sizable chunk of the team's salary cap space, i.e. never spend more than X percent of your cap at the running back position? Or should a team not have general rules for positional spending? It's always context specific, um, and, and there's no bright line rules in any of this. But you know, I do think there there are times where um, you know, I guess it depends where your roster is. Like for example, um, you know, if, if you're not in a competitive window, if you know you're not going to be a good team, like for me, like I, I think Christian McCaffrey is one of the best running backs in the NFL, if not the best running back in the NFL. And you already took him eighth overall, so you have to kind of further invest in that player. But no one's going to touch his deal now for several years. Um, you know, we've experienced a market correction at running back. Um, you know, guys can't get that sixteen million number is 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 way off in the distance. Um, and we saw Derrick Henry and Dalvin Cook and, and all these guys signed for, you know, 12, 13 million. So that was just a misstep, um, not only because it's just more than everybody else, but, you know, the, you knew that team wasn't actually going to do anything for the next several years anyway. So, um, you know, but but but, it, but it's tough. It's tough because if, you, if you're in a locker room and, and have a guy who's come in there, busted his ass, all the teammates respect him, appreciate him. Um, it's hard to just say, well, look, he plays, you know, left guards. So we just do, we don't pay left guards. And I get that. Um, but I, you know, I do think that, that we're going to see more and more. I mean, this is frankly my job. I, we're going to see more and more of kind of market corrections where, um, you know, teams recognize that they probably should have a threshold they don't cross at certain positions, uh, you know, and stuff like that. All right. This is kind of an odd question, but you're like the perfect guy to ask this question of. When it comes to the two major NFL salary cap and contract sites out there, OverTheCap.com and SpotRack.com, the data doesn't always match up. So which site is better? Which site do you use, OverTheCap.com or SpotRack.com? Well, I'll preface by saying that I, I am a employee of uh, OverTheCap.com, but uh uh, you know, it's not. This is not biased in my opinion at all. To be frank, um, 
you know, spot track copies uh, over the cap website. So yeah, essentially, I'm, I'm not a programmer or a coder, and you know, I don't know what listeners are, but there's something called scraping where you can go on the back end of a website and scrape the data from something, um, and, and then you know, take that data in, a, in an Excel file and use it yourself. And uh, time and time again, that's what spot track does. They just steal the information from us at overthecap.com. Um, and when things aren't, if there is a disagreement between the two sites, uh, I would tell you 95% of the time, the correct site will be overthecap.com. Uh, we saw that play out with Alex Smith. They had the wrong, Trek had the wrong information the entire time. Uh, we had the correct info up there um, for Alex Smith. And I, I talked to a couple, you know, football, other football team folks like yourself about that. Uh, so, yeah. So, yes, I'll preface that I'm biased, but I'm also not. Uh, it's overthecap.com by a considerable margin. Wow, that's great to know. Excellent intel. I'm guessing I'm not the only person who's wondered about that. Which site is the better site? Now we know. Now we have an answer. I appreciate that. Well, Brad, thank you so much for your time. Really enjoyed getting your perspective and continued success. Thank you. You can always tweet me at Al Galdi. I got this tweet from Tom Poindexter on Thursday night. Good Lord. How ridiculous is Dean Kramer's line for tonight? Uh, yeah. Dean Kramer's line from Thursday night, six runs in a third of an inning on five walks and two hits, including a homer, which was a grand slam. It all happened in a 9-0 Orioles loss to the Toronto Blue Jays in Buffalo in game one of a four-game series. The O's now have lost six consecutive games. The O's, since their 15 and 16 start to the season, are 8 and 36. 8 and 36. 36 losses in 44 games. And the O's now are an American League worst 23 and 52 with a major league worst run differential of minus 114. Yes, the O's have overtaken the Arizona Diamondbacks for having the worst run differential in the majors. O's have been outscored now by 114 runs on the season. O's have been outscored now over their last four games, 35-3. And oh yeah, the Orioles franchise record road losing streak continues. Thursday night's loss on the road The O's now have a franchise record road losing streak of 20 games. I mentioned the Diamondbacks. They recently set a new major league record with their 23rd consecutive road loss. The O's are gaining ground. The O's are threatening that record. This could be a back and forth situation as the season goes on. Which team sucks more on the road, the Orioles or the Diamondbacks? It's a battle of the irresistible force and the immovable object. We'll see which one prevails. But yeah, Dean Kramer got ravaged in this game on Thursday night. Six runs, he recorded just one out. He issued five walks. He gave up a grand slam and an RBI single. He threw 39 pitches, 17 strikes versus 22 balls. Do you know how rare it is that a starting pitcher finishes his outing having thrown more balls than strikes? And yet that's precisely what happened with Dean Kramer on Thursday night. The results of his oh-so-brief outing, a six-pitch walk of Marcus Semyon, a seven-pitch walk of Bo Bichette, a six-pitch walk of Vladimir Guerrero Jr., despite him having been down in the count at 1.02, an RBI single by Teoscar Hernandez, an RBI ground out by Randall Gritchick, 
a one-out six-pitch walk of Kevin Biggio, a one-out first-pitch grand slam by Lourdes Gurriel Jr., and a one-out six-pitch walk of Joe Panic, despite him having been down in the count at 1.02. When you walk the first three batters of the game, uh, that's a flashing neon sign of, uh-oh, problems be happening, and the problems developed and things snowballed, and it ended up being one of the worst outings that you'll ever see a starting pitcher have. And it's a shame because Dean Kramer was coming off a very good outing. He and the Orioles' 10-7 loss to the Toronto Blue Jays at Oriole Park at Camden Yards this past Saturday had, by my count, his second-best outing of the season. Two runs in six innings, six strikeouts versus three hits and three walks on 90 pitches. Remember the deal with Dean Kramer. He got optioned to AAA Norfolk this past May 26 off having struggled over his previous two starts, was recalled from AAA Norfolk on June 14th. So Kramer is one of many Orioles pitchers who have been shuttled between Norfolk and the major league level on the season. But the numbers for Kramer on the year now really are bad. And they were already bad going into the game on Thursday night. But Dean Kramer now, this season over 12 starts, has an ERA of 725 and a whip of 161. That is brutal. The Orioles starting pitchers save for John Means this season, they really have been atrocious. Like when you just look at the overall numbers for these guys, they really are horrendous. And speaking of John Means, we got a John Means update on Thursday and the update is not good. Orioles manager Brandon Hyde said that he doesn't anticipate Means being back until after the All-Star break. John Means has been on the 10-day injured list since June 6th with a left shoulder strain. So now it looks like he's not going to be back until, what, at least the middle of July. He's going to end up missing at least a month and a half with this left shoulder strain. You know, Means was doing so well, right? He threw that no-hitter in the win at the Seattle Mariners. But he then was iffy in two of three starts. Then he went on the 10-day IL, and we haven't seen him since, right? John Means has been out with his left shoulder strain. And obviously, you want him to get well. That's what matters the most here. But uh, like one of the big bright spots to the Orioles season has essentially disappeared at this point. And now it doesn't look like he's going to be back at the major league level pitching for the Orioles until at least the middle of July. Game two against the Blue Jays in Buffalo Friday night at 7.07. Matt Harvey, oh God, versus Alec Manoa. Uh, So Alec Manoa, let's start with him before we get to Harvey. Manoa, this is going to be interesting. Alec Manoa started that aforementioned 10-7 Orioles loss to the Blue Jays at Camden Yards this past Saturday. In that game, you may recall, there was an incident. So Ryan Mountcastle had a huge game in that game. He smashed three home runs and a single, finished with four hits and four RBI. He had a one-out first pitch, two-run homer, and an Orioles three-run fourth, during which benches and bullpens cleared And Alec Manoa was ejected off Manoa, hitting Michael Franco with the first pitch of a plate appearance of back-to-back homers by Mountcastle and DJ Stewart. Now, there were no punches thrown or anything like that, but things got testy. So it's going to be interesting to see if anything happens in this game on Friday night. But yeah, Harvey is starting for the Orioles. You know, when Max Scherzer starts for the Nationals, it's Scherzer's day. 
when Harvey starts for the Orioles, it's Harvey Day. But Harvey Day means something very different than Scherz Day. Matt Harvey on the season has an ERA of 780 and a whip of 178 over 15 starts. I'm telling you, these numbers for these Orioles starting pitchers, they make your jaw hit the floor when you look at them. Harvey over his last eight starts, 40 earned runs in 27 and a third innings. It remains a miracle to me that he remains in the Orioles rotation. Heck, that he remains on the Orioles roster. I know he was a nice story. He actually was halfway decent over his first seven starts of the season, ERA at 360, but he has completely fallen apart since then. He's an older guy. There's not a point in a tanking, rebuilding team like the Orioles trying to fix a guy like this if, in fact, he can't be fixed. And right now, it sure doesn't seem like there's any fixing Matt Harvey. Even when he does well, he struggles. His last start came in the 7-4 loss to the Blue Jays at Camden Yards last Sunday afternoon. Harvey actually tossed four scoreless innings, but then in the top of the fifth, gave up four runs and recorded just one out. So the final line ended up being four runs in four and a third innings. Harvey in a Blue Jays four-run fifth gave up the four runs on two doubles, three singles, and a walk. We shall see what goes down Friday night in Buffalo. All right, my friends, that will do it for you and me for now. Keep the feedback coming. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. The weekend, always a good time to catch up on anything that you may have missed. Some really good guests on the podcast this week. Monday show, episode 88. I spoke with the mysterious but intelligent Kyle Smith for GM of Hogs Haven. We went in depth on what Ryan Fitzpatrick's history tells us about what he needs to be successful and on the Washington football team's overall quarterback situation. Tuesday show, episode 89, a conversation with Washington, D.C.-based trademark and intellectual property lawyer Josh Gerben on the Washington football team's difficulty in trademarking Washington football team and more in the quest for a permanent name. Wednesday's show, episode 90, I went in-depth on Washington's quarterback situation with one of the best quarterbacks in Washington history, the great Joe Theismann. And Thursday's show, episode 91, I spoke with Chargers insider Jeff Miller of the Los Angeles Times on his well-received piece on former Washington quarterback Colt Brennan and on the Chargers, who the Washington football team will host in week one of the 2021 season. Have a great weekend. I'll talk to you on Monday. No! Not possible! Not possible! For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.